Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Today we have a conversation with a friend, Ed Rosa. That's me. Hi. My filmmaking partner and I have a YouTube channel, Toothless Richard Productions, where you can see a number of our short films. Twelve dudes stuck on an ice cube getting picked off one by one, realizing that the creature picking them off will be able to survive the cold, and they can't. Right. And the clutch thing is it transforms itself into the people that it attacks, so it looks just like us. So they can't tell who the thing really is. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Here's a good hypothetical. The remake should be this story from the thing's point of view. Right. <laughs> totally humanizing right. it. Like, <laughs> like why it deserves rights. This, the prologue would be a flying saucer that lands on Earth and is buried in the snow. And the thing crawls out of its ship. Oh, what's happened to me? I'm yeah. going to die. And then it freezes. And yeah. then we cut forward 80 or 100,000 years where these strange creatures dig it out of the snow and irradiate it with their light sources yeah. and force it into unpleasant circumstances. And it's and hungry. Burn it. And I it mean, just wants to have babies. And let's be honest, the thing was there first. Yeah, it, and then it literally we, was there first. We yeah. infiltrate its domain we yeah. can, and, and we want to poke it and prod at it and destroy it and all this stuff like the evil colonizers. And of course the woke left ought to go for this <laughs> idea because <laughs> the thing seems to be asexual in its reproductive Right, right. You can't put it into your binary boxes. It doesn't work. And if all of you sexist male binary dudes would stop harassing us, that would be better. But then it also agrees with the arch-right because it simply wants to take over the world that it needs for its own purposes. Let me. Right. I'm the superior force. Watch me consume you. Dude, we need to make Antarctica great again. (laughs) (laughs) When the alien shows up and the thing begins to take over these people and menace them... It's really dreadful because we watch these characters, particularly Kurt Russell's point of view character, McCready, look at this monster and realize they're overmatched and have to to rely on the simplest of possible tools, hammers to close off doors, what weaponry they've got, and really just deal with the fact they're scared and can't do anything about this monster that will literally eat and consume them. Yeah. John Carpenter is sort of credited with the the slasher because of Halloween. But in the thing here, he kind of shifts to body horror, which is, you know, a real subgenre of horror. And it's hard for me to conceive of many other body horror films that were on par with this thing at this time. It rips apart its host body and in some instances becomes a gigantic vagina dentata and just consumes the people around it in really gnarly fashion, tearing off limbs, bleeding them out in various ways. It has odd tentacles and stretches itself insect-like. It's sort of all different forms of organic life rolled into one really weird package that shimmies and shakes and does violence to anything that it meets. Yeah. 
One of the central transformations that the movie focuses on relatively early is this host dog. These dozen Americans at their camp who realize there's a Norwegian camp so many clicks away that they can fly to with their one helicopter. This animal, they don't sequester. They don't even view it as a real threat or a problem. It's It's cute. It is. It's fuzzy. It nuzzles them. It seeks protection under the table where they all eat. But when it's finally put in a kennel with the other dogs... It's a really good effect because the dummy animal that's placed in this kennel and the way that it's shot and framed, we can't see the hydraulics that run up through it. that yeah. split apart its muzzle and open up into this really odd maw. The tentacles that flash out, the shaking that it does, I presume using air and water power. It's quite gross. But yeah. there's, a, there's a detail of how this filmmaker, John Carpenter, and his staff weave together this clear artificial thing, this monster that looks pretty real. And that detail is one of the other dogs caught in the kennel begins to try to chew its way through the chain Mm -hmm. link. And so to watch this animal, roughly the size of my pet, tear through chain link, realizing how damaging that would be to the mouth of an animal, it's in desperate straits. So cutting between that freaked out dog and this transforming monster dog and all the things that are going on around it while the men are off in another room trying to figure out what are we facing, really works quite well. It looks photographically true and fully sells me, even despite my sophistication, on this movie's being a realistic portrait of what a thing advancing itself into a human enclave would look like if we were being attacked by an alien. Every time it moves in a, in a different way, it's, it's equally as disturbing. Like, whether it's moving slowly or whether it's some really high-energy frenetic movement. It's, it's a birthing experience every time it transforms. And we watch it transform into several different hosts. A dog, memorably, and a couple of different men who are in this encampment, including Wilford Brimley, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> which is a hoot. But that's akin to the physical violence that the mothering body is visited as it gives birth. Mm. The terrible trauma which arrives at a transformative thing. A new being is born. We're right. watching that symbolically expressed through this monster that's consuming people, but as it transforms into the next shape, it's kind of gnarly. Yeah. Interestingly, when this group of explorers encounter this beast and realize they're being hunted by it, they interrupt its transformation several times as well. Yeah. That's gruesome as hell. When it's extruding out of a host body, and you can see the implied shapes of all of the other hosts that's previously imbibed, Mm -hmm. part of the dog's face, part of one character's face, teeth, (laughs) but it hasn't yet fused into the new form, and so it's vulnerable in the transition from one stage to the next. When it's fused in a host, it seems pretty impervious. The other problem this movie highlights is the socio-political problem that the Cold War presented. I think that's how this movie was interpreted a lot Mm. in the early 1980s. (laughs) Those Ruskies are going to penetrate the soul of America. Right. They're going to look like us. Right. Act like us. Right. You get so you can't just you can't just look at a communist and know it's a communist. Which is an interesting thing to consider by casting. Because this group of people in Antarctica, led by our hero, Kurt Russell, is populated by a couple of non-white actors, Mm. particularly uh, the one that I think most people would recognize as Keith Keith David, who's had a huge career in the last 40 years. Race is not the thing that's thrown up as the problem. Right. That's actually sort of, in a way, the strength, because these differentiated men are able to attack this onslaught of an alien creature, whereas the Norwegians were simply overtaken, and they're all depicted as white dudes. (laughs) 
the encampment of these Americans is a pretty desolate place. It's rigged well. All of the things you would expect of a small city is present to support these men. What they're researching is is never clear. (laughs) But each of the men is also specialized. And in that way, I was thinking a lot about Alien. Another body horror movie, which Mm -hmm. was just slightly earlier than The Thing, and some of the effects of the transformation and the violence the thing does to its host body is, is very much an overlap with the way that the alien xenomorph tears apart its hosts yeah. in that movie. <laughs> and like the Nostromo in Alien, we watch a highly specialized group of, of people who are packed together in an enclosed space, and they can't escape they can't it. leave. They make a big point about how the various buildings in their outpost are uh, connected with, with guide ropes, so that in the blindness of being out caught in the weather, they can get their way you back safely. Yeah. And they make remarks like, We're going out to give Blair the test. If he tries to make it back here and we're not with him, burn there. They have computers at this outpost. And I know that in 1982, when this came out, that must have been so hugely of the future. Mm-hmm. But one of the computer programs runs a, a profile of what will happen if this creature escapes the outpost and makes it to global civilization. And it makes a computation that it, it will take over all organic life. Yeah. This thing mm. will be planet Earth if these men can't stop it. When McCready and the last handful of survivors, maybe it was three or four men that are left, they mutually agree, we're basically going to commit suicide by blowing up our encampment. That's our mission now, boys. Yeah. <laughs> we're going down with the ship quite literally. None of us is getting off this ice cube. And if we do well by the civilization we represent, humanity, we're going to take it with us. Because if we fail, it's just going to try to dig into the cold and be frozen again, just the way that it was before, for the next hapless fool that picks it up. That was chilling to me because I have not been in a situation where I can look at the group of people I'm I'm with, presumably friends who I've made across time, laborers. We've done things in common and said, listen, it's been fun. But our last duty to each other is to die. Together. Yeah, yeah, that's a conversation nobody really ever wants to have to have. And there's a military overtone to that, of course, which I think goes into the hoorah of a lot of our armed services. Of, sure. Yes, I'd, I'd lay down my life for my fellow soldier, trooper, sailor, because it's defensive country. This movie is a little distant from some of that sentiment because these are mostly viewed and sketched as civilians. Yeah, they're more like, you know, mercenaries. And so the leap that they make organically to the story that we have to take ourselves out and this location is an extraordinary breakthrough because Mm. I'm used to the individual pursuit of I've got to survive and all y'all I'll help but if it costs me my life I'm not going to do it right if they blow up the enclosure they're going to freeze to death and that's exactly how it ends right the natural tendency is to want that final confrontation where of course you know the humans are victorious but they were outmatched they're using up their supplies. Their numbers are, are diminishing with each victim. This thing can survive in the snow where they can't. The ending fits perfectly for the film. McCready and Childs sit across from each other, and they know that the cold is going to come and overwhelm them soon meaning one of them is likely the host of the alien, but we don't know which one. We know that they don't know which one, and there's no way for them to any longer escape or to heat themselves. Right. They're going to freeze. Yeah, at that point, it doesn't matter which one of them. 
The only thing that they need to worry about is how are we going to stop people from coming back here? A real bummer. And I know that when this movie was released, it was talked about as an anticipated follow-up from the filmmaker of Halloween and The Fog. And and this was looked at as a kind of vicious disappointment. Like, uh, yeah. From what I understand, not only did it bomb, it was critically uh, loathed as well as... Uh, in the fan community, I read on the Wikipedia, it was like Cinefantastique or something. Right. A magazine that should be in its corner. They they hated it, and it wasn't until recently, uh, in a relative sense, that this thing is, it, it, this thing is like now seen as like a masterpiece. Like people a, speak more highly of this than they do of Halloween, you know what I mean? It's right, like a, right, is a, a, a bigger scale, more thoughtful genre pleasure whereas halloween's a little bit of a one note thing and honestly to to watch halloween now it's mostly a very slow kind of boring movie with a couple of big sequences strung together by a point of view camera that does its job yeah i mean it's 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 well done for what it is but i i do think technically the thing is the superior film When it came out, it was promoted by a 30-minute long showcase of the special effects to gin up crowd interest. Mm -hmm. And I happened to catch that. And because you're not seeing it inside of the movie's emotionally realistic world, you're just looking at contraptions. Right. But you could sort of see how they were going to transform these sculptural objects into something really intensely scary, depending on the choices they might make. So I was very much, you know, team the thing. i got to see how this is going to turn out. Yeah. Then it was released. It got bad reviews, as you say. So it became this this fetish object of something that I wanted to see very badly. wasn't allowed to. It was considered too dark and mysterious and awful and terrible. And then eventually I saw it as a young adult. When all of those elements show up, it is really dark and mysterious. Oh, yeah. By that point, the immediate context of thinking of this movie from 1982 was lost. I, I must have seen it in the early 1990s. It's a convincing production design. This yeah. encampment works for me. Totally. I accept that this is what a permanent facility in Antarctica would look like. I accept that this is the personnel you would have there. I accept all of those things. And for all of my life, from when I was a boy onward, I thought Kurt Russell was pretty hot stuff. So I follow him along pretty easily. Sure. He's good eye candy, but he also is the sort of everyday guy of uh, of spirit and of of his body. He's a capable person. And he can act. And he's able to sort of shape certain circumstances where you watch him react to this crazy stuff that's just jumping off around. I'm like, okay, we got to figure out a way to get to our next meal. What are we going to do? There's really not a false note in this movie. Yeah. I think it works from start to finish. Yeah. The ambiguity of its conclusion satisfies me because it doesn't say everything's going to be fine, kids. Right, because it's not. <laughs> right. And that strikes me as maybe one of the great truths of this thing. If indeed we were assailed by an alien shapeshifter, <laughs> we're done. Yeah. It's a very realistic ending in that you can't fix it. Whatever will be, will be. The thing becomes analogous to the impression of what global warming might be, right. and therefore how nature will come climbing back and harm us when we screw it up and sure. the balance gets off. But I can also see it as having to do with the way not just nature fights back, but the foreignness of something that we refuse to accept its power, its authority. We're in a pandemic time. Mm. It's a pandemic analog. That this thing is an infection that overtakes people really fast mm-hmm. and transforms them by consuming them into itself. It's the Borg. It's yeah. the Matrix turning us into batteries. Right. It's all of those things 
roll into one at a moment 40 years ago before our imagination hadn't yet gotten that wide. Another thought, it's born just before we really get attached to perhaps the most prominent zoonotic disease of our lifetimes, AIDS, Mm -hmm. which comes online as something people begin to take seriously and understand by the middle 1980s. By 1982, it was understood in parts of the medical community parts of the cultural community from the afflicted, right. but it wasn't yet understood. There's this blood-borne thing that infects you that you can then infect others with right. if you're not careful. And if you don't treat that seriously, everybody Everybody's can become infected. It. There's a great line that Kurt Russell has, and I think it's he's talking into his tape recorder. Nobody trusts anybody now. We're all very tired. He's been up for three days mm-hmm. trying to deal with this crisis, and at some point, everybody fails. And they all know they're getting to that point. And if that happens, well, you can't any longer protect yourself. If your neighbor's unreliable, if your consciousness is unreliable, so it becomes an analog of a kind of madness as well. When you can't keep yourself rational, calm, and rested, and healthy, you collapse. Full stop. Mm -hmm. When the citizenry around you does that, your society collapses. Full stop. And the alien represents all of those things in all of those different ways. So it has this payoff really anytime you want to watch it yeah. for what it can mean. Yeah. That's what great art, uh, great uh, science fiction should do, right? I mean, it, it, it's telling it, its story on the surface, but it's there to also reflect deeper truths uh, to those that consume it if they can engage it on that level. And so, yeah, that uh, that, that certainly does provide the thing with a sort of an immortality I genuinely viewed this movie in its most recent experience as uh, more touching because of its odd reference points to the early 1980s. There are TVs with dial switches. There's Mm. a computer that has no GUI. It's all just typing in. These things, which I just very distantly remember, a top-loading VCR. Across the people I knew, all of the tools we see on screen were in homes around me at that time. Mm. And it's a reminder of what we once were as a, as a society. I like that stuff. It yeah. pleases me. But it anticipates all of these different ways that uh, we deal with one another, with disease, with foreign forces, with fear. Because in the end, we have exactly 12 people on this ice cube worried about this problem. They're a civilization unto themselves. I don't want to stay out here anymore. I want to come back inside. When this movie is released, June 25, 1982, a person who was thoughtful could on that very day have gone to see Diner by Barry Levinson, Conan the Barbarian... Rocky Three, Poltergeist, Firefox, Secret of Nim, The World According to Garp, Ron, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Blade Runner... Mm. But you could have crossed town to go see E.T. And the contrast is precisely the point. (laughs) Yeah, that's the double feature. Because E.T. is this really reassuring, extraordinarily friendly, joyful creature that you sort of want to cuddle once you get over his odd shape. Who means nothing but warmth and happy things for the children who are involved right. in his life. He's a pacifist. He's, he's a he's vegetarian. Here to, he's here to collect <laughs> and study plants, not That's, turn us into them. Versus this monster, which is significantly different. Versus Blade Runner's AI run amok. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears.
in my private readings, I've been reviewing the Production Code Administration and its restrictive practices from the 1930s through the 1960s when mm-hmm. that system through the Hayes Code, was, right? Yeah. And I was thinking about how the genre movies of the 1970s and the 1980s were often very self-consciously replying to the restrictions of the Code Administration era. There's like a giddy quality to how yeah. gory certain of these movies can be. And if we think back a bit to immediate precursors, even to Halloween and John Carpenter's sort of really big stake in the ground, something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. just ritualistically disgusting when it jumps mm-hmm. off. It's like those filmmakers telling those stories who had been raised on the rather saccharine business of The Greatest Show on Earth and its ilk from the 1950s yeah. come of age and decide, you know, now that the shackles have been dropped... Let's show the world what really is on our mind. Let's push the technology and the yeah. storytelling to its absolute limit and be as disturbing as we can possibly be, but still observe the conventions of how genre tales work with an established hero and a narrative that has a lot of energy that works towards a, an understandable conclusion, a setting that's got all the traits that we expect. But if it's going to be violent, blow out the back of the guy's head with the bullets. Yeah. If there's a monster, have it just tear people apart. Yeah. Don't just imply it. And because you and I have recently watched and talked about the original The Thing from Another World, and now are watching this remake. And there is yet another remake, which I don't want to trouble myself with. I've seen bits of it on cable, and it doesn't measure up. Yeah, I've heard it's not very good. It just does It can't improve on some of what's here. Yeah, it was amazing that this could do what it did as an improvement on the original. And it's like, I don't, I don't really think you can push it much further than that. Like, and it even apes some of the main elements of the original, which are so yeah. satisfying. We talked before yeah. about how, close the door! Yeah. know what that's referring to and that's exactly what great genre entertainment does it dives into the conventions it is deploying but it gins them up and changes some of their expectations and their treatment in significant enough ways that the learned viewer goes oh that's a great reward for my attention yeah like in the original the thing when they discover a dog that has been bled out and it falls out of a compost pile yeah and the scientists go oh now we know what it's trying to do is find out a likable food source and we go, oh my god i am a walking food bag yeah well we get to watch that predator creature consume people yeah and the quality of watching these very normal looking dudes react to this very abnormal situation causes me to buy into what's going on and think yeah carpenter has studied what the mode of this science fiction horror thing is, and he's decided to bring it really hard because he's got the big budget to do it. Unfortunately, people just weren't ready to go see this. That happens so often where art is just too much for people at the time of its release. Even people who are paid... To appreciate this kind of stuff, film critics. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I often think of uh, there was a review I read of uh, Kurosawa's Throne of Blood from 1957 that just like tore it up and down. The idea that anybody would, you know, assail that film with the charge of being garbage—you'd be laughed out of the room. Tonight. Right, right. Uh, and it's the same thing with this, where it was so disliked with art, it requires the passage of time for a real genuine assessment to happen that's why i like to revisit art that i have found to be you know quality stuff because it does yield more dividends uh, additional dividends with additional viewings 
not focusing on certain stuff because I already know it very well allows me to focus on other stuff that then just makes the film seem even better. Well, as I've aged, I've learned that my sensitivity to the craft of what goes into making a movie, in our example, has been heightened through greater exposure, more time, more consideration, meeting filmmakers, mm. having been forced to make films on my own, yeah. and so on. And what impresses me about this movie from that vantage is it is shot in the snow. I, th- I think they shot in Alaska. Juno, I think it said, yeah. So, some of it was refrigerated sets in L.A. And that's an impressive thing. Snow's hard. Yeah. They countered that by not having a sprawling cast in the hundreds. But they did have a cast in the dozens. And the, you know, the usual stuff holds. They have to have the same uniform, the same makeup effects. We have to understand where we are in, in time because this does move in a linear fashion. And we do. We're not confused by what's going on. But I love that McCready's walking around with a bottle of with the J- yeah. yeah, Oh, the JB. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's yeah. Uh, there's Coors Light cans. Yeah, you got to stay warm. Scenes. I know. You got to stay warm out there. <laughs> and in fact, that's of course the final social issue at the conclusion of the movie. He and Childs share swallows of the Jim Beam bottle as the last yeah. comfort they can offer one another while they just sit and wait. Yeah. Here we are talking, and next time I see you, it could be that you were consumed by an alien. Right. And then would I want to bring harm to the alien Ed, who looks and acts just like regular human Ed? Right. (laughs) It would be hard to do something to act against your former friend turned foe, first to identify that that has happened, second to get over the rational restriction that we civilized creatures have amassed across our lifetimes to not harm one another, and then third, to follow through with self-protective acts of violence to kill the monster. And we watch the characters in this movie wrestle with those ethical conundrums, which causes me to think this should be taught in law school. Yeah, right. (laughs) As a text on how it is small group behavior can deal with threat. When we don't really see a clear answer to how to solve things, We just go back to tribe or simple jingoism. And that's a good study. Because, as I say, if you were Alien Ed sitting across from me as we talk, I don't want you to eat me. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) Why did you kill my friend? Right. But I'm not prepared to do much about that, really. And I think this movie forces us to watch people who are similarly not courageous people have to shift their entire point of view about themselves personally, about the group of people that they're willing to defend and befriend, and then the fact that they're going to have to accept their ultimate destruction, and it's got to be okay. It sort of reminds me of like when you have it, like infidelity in a relationship. Hmm. The way the person is still that person, but something now is like fundamentally different, even though they still look like that person, and they still talk like that person, and you're still having those same feelings. Well, I think you're exactly right. It's, it's yet another analogy of why the thing matters. <laughs> <laughs> This is Blockbusters and Birdwalks, a conversation between Garrett Chaffin-Kirai and Ed Rosa. Boop-boobity-doo!